Greetings, everyone. This is Ruby Skinner, and I have the pleasure today to interview two experienced acute care surgeons who have established busy practices in elective advanced MIS surgery. We are conducting this webcast on behalf of the Career Development Committee, and the primary goal is to facilitate knowledge of the daunting pathway from residency and fellowship training to developing a skill set that allows for the application of advanced MIS procedures in both elective and acute care practices. We are joined today by Matt Martin and Andrea Pakula, and some of you may recall they participated in a very informative master video plenary session at EAST this year on MIS procedures in acute care surgery. I'm going to have both the speakers introduce themselves and tell us about their current practice model. Let's start with Dr. Martin. He is the Trauma Medical Director and the Director of Metabolic and Bariatric Surgery at Madigan Army Medical Center. Matt, it's great to have you here, and we um, are interested to hear about your current practice model. Yeah, sure. Great to be here. Thanks, Ruby. And and I guess we're going with age before beauty, so I'll go for <laughs> Andrea. Uh, as you said, I'm the trauma medical director here at Madigan. It's an Army medical center. This is also where I did my residency. Uh, but I'm also a, a relatively active MIS surgeon, with most of that being bariatrics. And uh, actually, currently, I'm serving as the bariatric medical director for the hospital. Uh, currently, about half of my practice is trauma critical care, and then the other half is general surgery, which is mostly MIS and bariatrics, uh, and that includes now some robotic surgery. Great. Um, Andrea Pakula is uh, one of my uh, trauma partners at Kern Medical Center. She is also the associate uh, director of our surgical ICU, and she's the director of our robotic program here at Kern Medical. Can you tell us about your practice, Andrea? Yes, and thank you also for, for uh, inviting me for this um, for this webcast. Um, so my practice is, as you said, I'm the Associate Director of the Surgical ICU and the Director of Bariatrics in the Robotic Program. I'd say my practice is about probably 60% now elective, um, which consists predominantly of bariatric surgery and abdominal wall reconstruction, some form of hernia surgery. And I would say the majority of it now is uh, minimally invasive, uh, mostly robotic, some laparoscopic, and then, of course, open when necessary. Um, we are also a, a teaching hospital here, and I actually did my residency here as well before leaving for fellowship. Um, and so now I'm now I'm back as faculty. <laughs> That's great. So, you know, I think the really uh, the, the bulk of this discussion, I think the important part of this discussion is really how you guys uh, acquired the skill set to, you know, apply it um, in an MIS practice. Um, we know that, you know, most most things these days are moving towards um, MIS, uh, using MIS techniques, even in acute care surgery. And, you know, how does a, a, a resident grad or a, a fellowship grad jump into doing advanced procedures like hernias and bariatric procedures? Um, and also, um, did you guys do any additional fellowship training? So why don't we start with Matt for that? Sure. So that's, boy, that's a big topic. It is. Um, <laughs> so, and, and I'm not, I'm actually not so much worried about the new grad um, mm -hmm. because I think I think they're generally coming out now pretty well versed 
in definitely in laparoscopy and, and more and more so now in robotics. Um, I'd say the more challenging thing is, you know, you, you've been out of residency five or ten years and you didn't do a whole lot of that in residency, but you want to start doing it because you're kind of feeling like you're getting behind. And, and how do you how do you pick up this skill set that you really didn't train for a whole lot in residency? So, so um, in my residency, I, I actually really liked laparoscopic. I tried to do as much as I could. Uh, we really didn't have any robotics when I was doing my residency, uh, but we were just starting to do a lot of advanced uh, MIS, laparoscopic surgery. So, so I think I came out of residency with a pretty broad base experience in MIS surgery, so I felt pretty comfortable. Uh, and then a lot of that was bariatrics. So, so I think all of the ones people that graduate this program here, we come out very comfortable doing bariatric surgery. And, and if you look at our case numbers, it you know it equals or exceeds most bariatric fellowships I would say in the country. Uh, and, and then after that, it's really just you know what what you're interested in, what you're comfortable doing, what your program will support. And and the biggest thing here is we we had our tradition of. You know, people coming out of training and being able to continue doing that type of practice, and and a very a very open proctoring process, mm-hmm. where when I came back from fellowship and started doing bariatrics, that that first year I was mostly scrubbing and being proctored by a couple of the older guys who were doing a lot of laparoscopic and bariatric surgery, uh, so it was almost like a mini fellowship. Uh, and, and then, and with the, so I think you have to have the the basic background, and then I think unless you know, unless you've done a very focused program or fellowship, having some kind of proctoring or mentoring when you're first getting started, I think those are the critical aspects of of being able to make that jump successfully. Great, great. It sounds like your your training was um, a very good, very broad. Um, you know, as, um, I, I don't think that that translates to, you know, across the board. And, you know, there are various different types of residency uh, training models. And, you know, most recently the laparoscopic requirements or the numbers have gone up, which has created, you know, some concern. Um, Andrea, can you tell us about your uh, your process of going from residency to your current skill set? Sure. Um, yeah, you know, my residency was a little bit different. We did um, have – I did do quite a bit of laparoscopy, and like Matt, I was very interested in minimally invasive techniques. And so we had had one or two surgeons at the time that were doing complex MIS, but by the end of my residency, those surgeons had actually moved on and, and had left um, left here. And so it was really uh, kind of up to me once I left to further – I guess, um, established my skill set. And so after fellowship, when I came back and I was asked to kind of leave the bariatric program, um, you know, with that I wanted to do additional MIS procedures. So I actually went and did a number of, and there wasn't actually anybody really here to proctor me per se, so I went and did a number of preceptorships, mini fellowships, almost doing an additional fellowship is what it seemed like, um, just focusing on bariatrics and hernia because those were really my two areas of interest. And so much so that I, you know, I was able to take the skills that I had had and just develop it into, I think, a little bit more of a complex um, MIS skill set. Great. What about robotics? Um, you know, uh, I think both of you have mentioned that robotics is a part of your um, uh, of your uh, your armamentarium for MIS. Um, 
you know, how how did you go about getting uh, that training? Um, we'll we'll start with Matt. Yeah, so the robotics the robotics process is actually a little more formalized now, you know, compared to laparoscopy. Uh, you know, any, anybody come out of resident can do laparoscopy. So, so in general, for general surgeons to do robotics, uh, you have a a period of training, which includes there's an online component, uh, and and we'll talk about the Da Vinci robot since that's the only platform currently available. So there's there's a graduated program where you do online training, you do a hands-on familiarization with the robot uh, that's with your local rep. You usually then go somewhere and do a day of case observation, uh, which is at another hospital with a high-volume robotic surgeon. Uh, they then take you to the robotic course uh, where you do procedures, and that's a, a live animal lab. And, you know, they ensure you have all the, the basic skills to operate the robot and do these procedures. And then you go back to your center and your first uh, whatever number are required by your credentialing committee cases are proctored. And, and oftentimes if you don't have an internal proctor, then they'll bring in an external proctor. So, so it's actually much more of a formalized program than really it is for laparoscopy. And, and that's the process I went through when, when I decided to, start, decided to start doing robotics. And fortunately, there were three or four of us here who were at the same point in deciding we wanted to do robotics, so we, we all did it together. Uh, and then we had a couple of experienced robotic surgeons here to proctor us. Uh, but, but actually, I found that was a very a very nice structured process. And, and when I started doing the robotic cases, I felt pretty comfortable because I'd gone through that process. Uh, whereas, you know, we, we might see that less often with laparoscopy where there's not that kind of structured program to, to get you to where you're credentialed to do these procedures. Right. Anything to add, um, Andrea? Yeah, I would, I would just add um, that is one of the things about robotics, and again, like you said, only Da Vinci is available right now or intuitive through intuitive, but they have such a well-established process for surgeons becoming um, uh, credentialed so that really hopefully there's you know it, it's more room for success and not failure and they're extremely supportive so um, I did the exact same process when I trained and I actually had gotten an outside uh, uh, proctor and he's actually been a mentor for me through much of my even you know two and a half years into, into robotics now where I'll still you know if there's a complex case that I'm going to add or um, you know, one that I, I haven't necessarily done, I could just call him and talk to him, and it's it's just a really a great way of of becoming comfortable with the the technology, and then being able to establish it in your practice and just make it a, a successful practice. I think the other key part in um, in a, you know developing a program because we didn't have a program here. Uh, we had urologists that actually with them came the robot, and that's how I ended up getting involved. Um, and getting trained, and one of the things that we did was was uh, developed a robotics committee in order to really help to facilitate the proctoring of other surgeons and credentialing of our other surgeons, and you know going over some other issues related to the robotics program. So I think that's an important part too, not just not just going through the um, the training itself. Right. Yeah, and and I think and I think the other point is that realize that process gets you to some basic robotic skills. Like, that's what you do, then you start doing some robotic gallbladders, some robotic inguinal hernias. Mm -hmm. uh, 
But then, you know, you want to start doing complex abdominal wall. You want to start doing colon resections. The next step then is you go to one of the focus courses. And, right. and again, there are a bunch of those available, and the companies are very good about making you aware of those. And, and you want to do colons, you go to a two-day course, and that, that really covers robotic colon surgery. Abdominal wall, same thing. You, know, you shouldn't be doing a, a robotic tar unless you've, you know, gone to one of these courses and actually know what you're doing. Uh, and, and, you know, those, those have really proliferated. They're out there and available, and I would make use of those liberally, you know, as you want to start expanding your, your robotic skills. Right. So we'll, get, we'll come back to credentialing. I think those are all very good points. Uh, speaking of courses, you know, there are a number of courses that are available for um, hernia, for abdominal wall reconstruction. Um, you know, both open laparoscopic robotic, um, and um, you know, I think that is probably maybe a natural part of the armamentarium of the trauma surgeon who you know manages a, a complex abdominal uh, procedures and uh, you know manages the open abdomen. Um, what are some of the uh, uh, courses that you took? How how do you train and how do you develop that skill set? You want to start, Andrea, with that? Sure. Um, so as I said, you know, my I really have a, a, a passion for hernia surgery and having dealt with the open abdomen and having to do open tar and all of these big open complex abdominal wall reconstruction. For me, it was a, just a natural progression because I had gone to a number of those courses for the open surgery, and I joined then um, maybe four years ago the International Hernia Collaboration, which is actually an online, you know, it's a closed Facebook group specifically related to hernia. Um, there's a number of other ones as well. There's a robotic surgery collaboration. There are a number of other uh, uh, Facebook social media groups. And through that, I was actually um, able to attend one of their labs, so the IHC lab or the International Hernia Collaboration lab. And that lab, based on your experience and based on what you normally do in practice, was really geared towards training you to do, you know, further further surgery, whatever that may be. For me, it was actually focused on TAR because I had done a number of the other types of hernias uh, related to robotics. Um, and so, you know, that's where it started. And since then and now, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, I've, able, I've been able to now participate as, a, as an educator and actually train in a number of those uh, upper-tiered courses through, through Intuitive. That's great. Anything to add along those lines, Matt? Uh, well, I, I would just say, you know, you bring up abdominal wall, and and that's argu unarguably the fastest area of growth in robotics and general surgery now. So, so I also think you have to you have to look at the the procedures that are high growth and those procedures that have kind of flatlined and and try and figure out why. Mm -hmm. And and there's a reason why that's a big growth in robotics because you can do a robotic ventral hernia repair much better than you can do a laparoscopic ventral hernia repair. I, I, I'm convinced of that. And, and, I'm, and I will be open and honest and say the vast majority of procedures, when I do them robotic, I can do the exact same thing laparoscopic. Uh, and, and, you know, there, there's no patient benefit to that. It's just a different way of doing it. But ventral hernia is one where I say, yeah, I can do a lot more robotically because of the angling, because of being able to close that that defect and working above you, than I can robot, than I can laparoscopic. 
So, so I think you also look for those areas where the robot is really value-added or extends your capabilities versus it's, it's just a different way of doing it. And, and, and you know, to, to add to that, it's, and it definitely makes it easier for us, of course, to close the defect, be able to, you know, use the articulated instruments, but the ability to do some of these repairs for patients, minimizing the use of certain types of fixation, um, I mean, we've seen dramatic differences, I think, in, and the data has shown it too, but the early data in laparoscopy versus robotics for some of these hernia repairs related to pain, uh, you know, SSOs, things like that, even defect closure, as he mentioned, and also uh, length of stay, for sure, because of the, it, it's just, for some of these repairs, it's, I think, a better repair and better tolerated for the patients oftentimes. Sure. One of the things that you mentioned earlier, Matt, was you, you know, thought that this session is, you know, even more geared towards the surgeon that's been out five, ten years or so, who's a bit behind on advanced laparoscopy. Um, since we're talking about robotics, what are your thoughts about that particular surgeon? They wanting to, you know, jump into advanced lap uh, minimally invasive cases. Um, do you think robotics is a better pathway? Um, you know, do you have to have the advanced laparoscopic skill set to do those same procedures robotically? Yeah, and, and that's a big debate right now is, you know, should you be an expert laparoscopic surgeon and able to do everything, and, and that's, you know, your criteria for then being able to start doing robotics, and I don't think that's true. And, and in many ways, robotics makes makes doing things laparoscopically much easier. You can definitely, anybody can suture intracorporeally with a robot versus it's a much harder skill laparoscopically, and, and, and that's fine. And, you know, if your laparoscopic experience at that point is limited, it's fine to go into doing robotics, and it, it, again, it's just a it's a skill multiplier. So, so I don't think you need to attain you know the top level of laparoscopic skills before you can start basic robotics. Uh, so, so I would say you know you, you, again you do you do what you want to do, what your program supports, and what you have available, and, and what you can do safely and optimally, uh, and and what you can incorporate into your practice. You know, and, and even if you're just doing, you know, if all you do is trauma and emergency surgery and you do no electives, there are definitely ways to incorporate robotics and, and a lot of laparoscopy into trauma and emergency surgery. Great. Um, Shay, switching gears a little bit here, um, you know, what organizations uh, would you suggest that surgeons um, join and what meetings should they go to as they're um, advancing their um uh, laparoscopic skills, um, be it for bariatric or just for other advanced procedures. Uh, Andrea? Um, well, for bariatrics, there's um, the ASMBS or the American Society of Metabolic and Bariatric Surgery, which is a very good meeting. Um, of course, SAGES is the biggest, you know, endoscopic society um, around, I think, uh, at least nationally and internationally, and that focuses on all aspects of minimally invasive surgery. Some of the smaller meetings, there's the MISS, or the Minimally Invasive Surgery Symposium, which happens every year. Um, I think that, and, and again, you know, like just to, to bring it back to, and I'm sure uh, Matt will talk about this too, the the importance of, of the impact of social media now with regards to learning and, and um, teaching and, you know, networking with other surgeons, which is a 
been a great way to be mentors to other surgeons, be, you know, a mentee or get mentored by other surgeons. And all of these meetings together oftentimes just, you know, they're, they're often interrelated somehow. So if you go to one, you often see the same people that you do at the other meetings. Um, but you can really find a meeting to focus on whatever it is that you're interested in. But I think those, in my opinion, are probably the, the kind of the key meetings for the minimally invasive uh, surgery. Matt, your thoughts? Can you, can you believe that the first organization she didn't say was East? Right, right. <laughs> oh, man. That's the purpose that of gonna the... That was going to be right. the... That was going to be... <laughs> well, yeah, that's... You're you're right, and you know what? With what you've done within the last you know couple years, and trying to bring with with the plenary session or the sunrise session that we did a couple years ago for bariatric emergencies, a lot of what was discussed was minim, minimally invasive right. approaches to that. And then of course the plenary uh, masterclass video session that she mentioned that was in January was absolutely you know it was all about the MIS approach to acute care, emergency general surgery problems. And, yes, I would love for each to have been, you know, my first choice. Um, I think that uh, trauma surgeons were a little um, slow to adopt MIS, and I don't know if that's because we're so used to open, maximally invasive surgery. You know, and if it's emergency general surgery, we kind of tack that on because the trauma surgeon has been the one that is taking care of most of those problems. But, I mean, like you, I know that, um, you know, we, we both feel that uh, these, these things should, that these patients should be getting the same approaches that we would do um, electively or even in an emergent setting rather than jumping to an open technique. So, yeah, East, East we need to move that up the, up the ladder <laughs> on the list, and I can't believe I didn't even say it. <laughs> yeah, and, and I I. I agree with what Andrea said. You know, the 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 big ones would be Sages, probably Sages and SLS for laparoscopy and robotics, uh, ASMBS for bariatric focus, and 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 those are those are your good meetings to go and kind of see the latest and greatest and what's going on and keep yourself up to date. The the other the other thing you want to do if you really want to do this in your practice and especially if you're gonna if you're finishing training and you're gonna want to go somewhere and get credentialed or if you're moving and you want to get credentialed to do this somewhere else, you know we're increasingly getting into the world where if you don't have a fellowship certificate, you better have a lot of things saying you know that that you know what you're doing and you're an established surgeon in that field and so the other part of joining those organizations and going to those meetings is that helps you kind of build up your credentials like right. Like I didn't do a bariatric fellowship, right? And and nowadays it's hard coming out of training. It's hard to get a bariatric job unless you've done a fellowship, you know. And for the people a little bit older like me, you, you know, you better have some credentials so I can say I'm an ASMBS member, you know, and and I'm a peer reviewer for a bariatric journal or something like that. So so you really want to start building those extra credentials too, if if that is really part of your career plan. Uh, in, in addition to the educational benefit you get from going to these meetings. Right. Very good point. Um, along those lines, um, are either one of you um, uh, consultants or education, uh, educators uh, for industry? We'll start with Andrea. Uh, yeah, I am. I, um, I am an educator or consultant, proctor, whatever you'd like to call it, for intuitive. So I actually do... Um, 
speak for them, and I do some of the uh, hernia courses up at Sunnyvale, which is their main office, um, and then also uh, for Bard, which is one of the mesh companies, and I do a lot of teaching as far as uh, technique goes for, for open and, and minimally invasive techniques for hernia and tar and things like that. So, again, those are my kind of two areas of passion, and that's what I looked into um, you know, that's what I was, was okay with being an educator and a consultant for. Matt? Uh, I've done some proctoring for robotics uh, within the military, so uh, other military hospital that has started doing robotics for general surgery. You know, I've gone there to do the proctoring. That was not industry-sponsored. That was, you know, through the military. And 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 we obviously, we have a lot more problems of of trying to do something for industry, especially getting paid. So I, I have not done any of that, and I, you know, specifically avoided that because of the military conflicts. But I think if you're going to do that, you know, do it like Andrea is doing it and, you know, become an educator and you're teaching these courses, which, you know, which is great for you and your skills, and you probably learned as much teaching these courses as the people who are attending them. Uh, I, I would avoid, though, just being the person who, you know, flies to a city to do a dinner and, and tries to hawk some, some industry product, you know, for a couple hours of dinner and then flies home. Right. Right. Yeah, exactly. Um, I think it's, you know, good that uh, good to see that more and more, um, you know, trauma-trained or trauma-identified surgeons are um, involved in, you know, in these meetings uh, like you, uh, Matt, you know, being an editor for some of the main journals and, you know, or participating at a, a much different level at the, the meetings other than East or the meetings related to um, MIS surgery. I think that really um, uh, shows the breadth of trauma surgery and, and what we have to offer to the surgical community. Um, along those lines, um, MIS, like we said, is being applied in all areas and Specifically, I want to ask both of you, how do you apply it in your acute care practice? What cases do you do? Um, do you push the envelope even for trauma other than diaphragms? We'll start with Matt. Uh, yeah, I, I apply it in all, all aspects of my uh, practice. Uh, I, I think you, you are going to have less opportunities to use it in straight-up trauma, you know, because with all the trends now, you're either managing most things non-operatively or they're an absolute emergency. But but there are a lot of a lot of areas where you can use it. I I definitely use it for diaphragm injuries, like you mentioned. Uh, I've done you know a handful of laparoscopic spleens for some delayed complication. Uh, or you know you you have the patient who has passed their initial trauma, they've developed some complication or or you know new diagnosis. Uh, and, and that's amenable to a MIS procedure. Um, I did a I did a laparoscopic, you know, distal pancreatectomy for a patient who had a, a delayed recognition of a distal pancreatic transection, and and you know I, I think that was a much better procedure for that person, you know, an 18 year old who now has a couple laparoscopic incisions versus a laparotomy. Uh, but realizing there's going to be less opportunity to do a high volume of those procedures, you know, almost no matter where you are in trauma. Uh, really, it's more of an opportunity, I think, in the ACS or emergency surgery side to integrate that. Uh, and you can integrate, the, you know, you do the easy stuff like gallbladders. You know, start doing a lot of your gallbladders robotically. 
I, I think most of our practices, you know, we're getting a lot of gallbladder and appendix consults, and, and gallbladder is a great case to start to do robotically and build your basic robotic skills. Mm-hmm. Yes. Andrea? Yeah, no, I um, pretty pretty similar in my approach. I mean, if the patient is stable and I, forget about trauma, but if talking about emergency general surgery, if the patient is stable and, I, you know, can withstand uh, pneumoperitoneum, then I will approach almost all of them minimally invasive. Um, and typically laparoscopically to start, especially if I'm not quite sure where the pathology is, you get a little bit of a, um, you know, better look around laparoscopically before actually docking the robot. And then I have absolutely said, you know what, let's dock the robot and go and fix this, um, you know, incarcerated hernia or whatever it may be. We've done some um, uh, perforated ulcers. Um, I like, those are fun to do. Uh, You know, if you know where the pathology is with the robot, it makes it a little bit easier. Um, But definitely approaching all of these laparoscopically at minimum. Um, And as for trauma, it's similar. You know, stab wounds are sort of the easier ones to go with because you have somewhat of an idea trajectory. Um, so that you know what you're potentially going to fix. Again, if they're in hemorrhagic shock and they're unstable, then probably not going to even, you know, mess around with um, putting in the laparoscope. Um, similarly, with some of the delayed complications from spleens, um, uh, what else? Uh, missed bowel, if you think that there might be a delayed presentation of a bowel injury, things like that. But, yeah, I absolutely, um, I will approach, because, the worst thing that's going to happen, if it's, if you want to consider it the worst thing, is you got to convert to open. So at least you've given it a try, and if your skill set is that such that you can complete it laparoscopically once you've identified I think that the patient is going to benefit from that. It, any um, conflicts with, you know, developing the skill set as a um, practicing surgeon with also training residents? Um, uh, you want to start with that, Andrea? Yeah, so um, I think, you know, I, I we talk about this now. I think a lot of the people that are doing robotics and building these robotic curriculums within their training centers touch on this and reflect back to whatever it was like in the late 80s, early 90s when laparoscopy came around. Um, you know, we are learning a new technology. We're not learning the procedure. I mean, we should be doing these operations already, so that's not, you know, that's that part's gone. But we do have to learn, and we learn on, like Matt said, gallbladders, inguinal hernias, a lot of the cases that are kind of the bread and butter for the residents um, early on in their training. And so there was definitely some um, angst, I guess, if you will, from the residents about us taking cases, so to speak, um, but not realizing, you know, that we are learning this to be able to then train you, you know. And so there was a transition period for a few months with some cases that we were doing, but I really tried to incorporate a curriculum which we developed here and get the residents involved early so that they can at least, you know, get a feel for what we're doing while understanding that we have to learn this before we can go in and um, train everybody else. So, Matt, what has been your experience with uh, uh, trainees? Yeah, I, 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 think, I think the biggest conflict comes with robotics, you know, with, with laparoscopy. You know, you, you, they're there at the bedside with you. You can let them operate as much as you're comfortable with, even if you're doing something relatively new, even if they're not there actively assisting you. Then when you transition to the robot and you're either at the bedside, 
you know, holding retraction or you're actually at the console operating is where the conflict comes in. And when you're when you're first learning this, you're going to be at the console, right? And, and the resident is often going to be at the bedside, and that's not a whole lot of fun for them. I, I think the the key is if you're in a training program and you're doing robotics, you want to have the robotic teaching console, and that's the second right. console that you can get with with the robotic package, and that now allows the resident now they're on a console and you're on a console. Uh, and in fact, I found that makes my procedures go faster. That makes it go faster than when I'm the only one on the console because there's three robotic arms, and, you know, for you to control all three, you have to continuously stop, hit a button, switch to the third arm, and and when you have another person on the teaching console, you're now operating all three all three arms together along with the camera. So So once we got through that initial learning phase, which was actually relatively brief, and we had the teaching console. I found that our residents, our residents jumped right on board, and they they love the robotics now because they can get on the console and they can actually do the case. And you're on the other console, so you have some measure of control. Uh, you know, it's it's not like they're they're completely you know driving the car, and you don't have any control. You can always push that take button, my favorite button on the console. Take the <laughs> instrument and say, well, all right, stop right there. <laughs> Let, let, let's think about this a little more. Uh, so, but it, it not, if you don't have the teaching console, then then it's you know either you or someone else is on the console, and that can be a you know a hard hard to navigate with trainees. Sure, sure, great. Well, you know, I think we've covered um, a lot of uh, great topics. Um, we've covered your backgrounds. We've covered. Um, how you guys navigated through uh, developing the skill sets and applying that in your practice uh, practices and credentialing and also um, establishing you know expertise uh, by being involved with the organizations and education and things like that. Um, I'm going to give. Uh, I, I would like both of you to give you know some closing remarks and some final advice uh, uh, for uh, surgeons, young surgeons, or Surgeons uh, who have been out for a bit but want to um, tackle uh, more advanced procedures uh, about building a practice and applying MIS in the full breadth of surgery. We'll start with Andrea. Um, well, I think that whether you're coming out of training or if you've been out for a while and you're interested in MIS, I think, especially if you're a trauma surgeon or going through critical care uh, fellowship, I think that Nowadays, minimally invasive is really becoming, if it hasn't already, become standard. And I think that in every aspect of training and fellowships in particular, MIS is a part of it and should be a part of it. Critical care, um, you know, there is still uh, some portions of various fellowships where acute care surgery is a big component, and most of that is done minimally invasive. So I think that if you have the interest and you haven't formally done a Minimally Invasive Fellowship, there are a number through the societies, through the organizations, and through, um, as I mentioned, some of the, um, you know, the different uh, collaborations, uh, hernia collaboration, robotic collaborative, all of those, that you can find courses uh, geared towards developing a skill set of, of minimally invasive and or robotic, whatever, however you'd like to call it, um, surgery. And I think that it's going to be necessary, and it is necessary, that we as acute care surgeons have the ability to offer that level of care to, to our patients um, beyond trauma. Um, so that's, I think there's a lot out there that, that's open. 
Matt? Uh, yeah, sure. And, and one thing I, I think we have to mention that uh, I forgot to when we were talking about organizations, uh, AAST has also become invested in this. There's, they've started a new partnership with SAGES, yeah. uh, and specifically to increase the quality and quantity of MIS training experience in fellowships. Uh, and they're leveraging the experience of SAGES for that, and they've now done several cooperative programs at the SAGES meeting and at the AAST meeting, and Mike Cripps and Kim Davis and Rob Lim are running that. And I think that's sorely needed because I think we we fell behind the power curve. Trauma and acute care surgery, we, got, we are way behind where I think other general surgery and subspecialties are with MIS and robotics, and, and we need to be integrating that. Uh, probably my, in addition to what we just talked about, my biggest piece of advice for, you know, you want to start doing these procedures and expanding what you do is the nice thing is there are great online resources that you can use. And and probably the, my number one is WebSurge. There's a website called WebSurge. And that has nearly every laparoscopic and now robotic procedure you can imagine it has videos. And, and you can go by procedure, by body region. And, you know, and whenever I'm going to do something I haven't done a whole lot of recently, like a lap adrenal, I'll go to that website and I'll watch five or ten lap adrenal videos from an expert who's, you know, done it, and I feel a lot more comfortable going into the OR now doing that case. Um, there's another one called Jiblib, G-I-B-L-I-B. It's a newer video site. It's got a great of high quality, a lot of great high-quality surgical videos. And then Sages has a video library that's also pretty good. Uh, but web search is still my go-to. And then those collaboratives that Andrea mentioned on Facebook, join both of those, the international hernia and the robotics. And, and those are great because you'll, you'll see discussions of tough cases. There's a lot of videos people post saying, hey, you know, look how I did this procedure. Or if you have a tough case and a, and a question about how should I handle this, you just post it on there. And then suddenly you've got 10 or 20 responses, you know, from experts around the world in that field. So, so those are key resources to get you ready to do something that maybe you don't do a high volume of. Uh, and, and then my biggest piece of advice, if, if you really want to want to do this and become highly skilled in this, and, and if you have any possibility of maintain an elective practice, some type of elective practice, you know, that still gives you, you know, hernias and elective gallbladders and maybe even more advanced stuff than that. And, and I think that's where we fell off the power curve a little bit is we, we as a specialty, very much separated from any kind of elective practice in many of our centers. And, and I think that's what keeps you up to speed a lot on some of these things, you know, like outpatient workup and management indications for surgery for patients who don't need emergent surgery. So, so those would be my biggest pieces of advice and, and, you know, kind of the things I use to help keep me up to speed on, on these things in MIS and robotics. Very good, very great advice um, from both of you. Um, I have one final question. It could be, um, and you've touched upon this, um, where do you see acute care fellowships going? Um, there's so many different models out there. Um, how do you see MIS being um, uh, applied in the acute care, that acute care year? Should it be really all MIS? I mean, that's should it really be an MIS fellowship to get the you know the the acute care surgeon uh, uh, ready to then apply that skill set in their practice? What are your thoughts 
we'll start with you, Andrea. Um, yeah, I think I think acute care surgery fellowships have been evolving over the last several years, and I think you know somewhere is it a second year in addition to a critical care year? Is it its own fellowship? Is it a one year or a two year? And I think that the focus is more on what they are covering in the year. Oftentimes, it, it's 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 um, you know they do endocrine and ortho and vascular, some of the areas that often are seen in other aspects or other fellowships. And I do think that it it should, in my opinion, should be really focused on acute care surgery with an with a minimally invasive uh, approach to that surgery because, like we've said. Um, you know, emergency general surgery, we, we're behind as trauma surgeons and acute care surgeons, but every other aspect of surgery, you know, has, has picked up minimally invasive techniques, and I think that acute care surgery fellowships need to just be minimally invasive. And I don't know that they should be separated. It shouldn't be a, is it a, should it be an MIS or acute care? I think MIS just needs to be thought of when you're talking about acute care surgery. So an ACS fellowship should probably be minimally invasive for the majority of it. We always have to know open surgery and that's fine, but they can learn to approach them minimally invasive and then open should that be necessary. Dr. Martin, do you want to give us the final word on this topic? Sure. I'll, I'll go back to that partnership, AAST SAGES. That, that is a problem they are actively working on, is how to incorporate more MIS into the fellowship process. Uh, I, I think it needs to be part of our fellowships, and, and however you do that, that's going to be institution-dependent. You know, we, we, we keep hearing talk about, well, you know, uh, acute care surgery fellowship needs to include, you know, neurosurgery and doing craniotomies and ortho. You know, you need to know, know how to do X-fixes. I mean, in, in the U.S., we're not going to be doing neurosurgery. We're, we're, there's no need for us to be doing orthopedics. But, you know, you shouldn't come out of that fellowship not having done some degree of MIS for trauma and acute care surgery procedures. So, so I think that's that's very high yield and it's something we have to incorporate into our fellowships. And, and the goal would be the goal would be to get away from the point where it's luck of the draw, of you know when you got injured or ill and presented. You know, right. you, you have you have a simple diaphragm laceration, and the determinant of whether you get a big laparotomy versus you know a three incision MIS is just going to be who's on call that day that you come in. Right, I think that it's nice to move away from that and get to the, you know, you're going to get the best procedure for your pathology, no matter where you go. Great, and that's a great final statement. We'll end here. I want to thank um, uh, Dr. Andrea Pakula and Dr. Matt Martin for uh, spending, uh, sharing their time and um, giving us their um, expertise um, on a very um, uh, not controversial, but a very rapidly growing area in the um, area of acute care surgery. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks, Ruby. Great. Thanks, Andrea. All right. Thanks, Great. Matt. All right. Okay.